I don't know if you ever get overwhelmed by city of Hong Kong. I have a friend who just came out to Hong Kong this past year, and he said it took him only a couple of months to realize that the whole city is organized around wealth, and he found out exactly where he fit in it. I have another friend who told me that Hong Kong shouldn't be called properly a city, but should be called a trading post. Because the mentality of materialism is the air we breathe. It's tangible, it's palpable all around us. And about 11% of uh, Hong Kong population call themselves Christians, uh, including our Catholic brothers and sisters. But who knows how many of those people are really active members, people who take their faith seriously and are out there proclaiming Jesus. But we believe that God has put here on earth, we believe that God has put here in Hong Kong to change Hong Kong, to be influence, uh, to be salt and light uh, for Hong Kong and for the world. And most of us want to be part of that. Most of us want to be part of God changing this city, God changing this world to make a difference for Hong Kong and the world. But you go down to Central and you look up to International Finance Center, this tall building. How can we even begin to think that we can make a difference? As we see capitalism, market economy all around us, um, how can we begin to think that we would would have a a part in changing this city? How does a city like this change? Really, I think Jonah felt the same way when God called him to go to Nineveh. Think about Nineveh and the reason why he ran away. Nineveh was a daunting and intimidating city. First, Assyrians built their enormous empire through intimidation and violence. For example, a king, I've practiced many times, but I don't think it's going to come out right. Assured Sir Paul the second. Uh, a century before Jonah's writing, now Jonah's uh, coming, wrote this about his reign and what happened. He says, I caused a great slaughter. I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoners and impaled them on stakes before their cities. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive from them. I cut off their hands and wrists. Some I cut off their nose and ears and fingers. I put out the eyes of many soldiers. I burnt their young men and women to death. And the description goes on to say how sometimes he would actually then skin people, flay them, and display this, this, uh, this skin uh, 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 on, on stakes and drape the walls of the cities uh, with these uh, skins. Jonah undoubtedly heard about these stories, or heard of these stories. Undoubtedly, he was intimidated by it. How could I change this city? And for this and for other reasons, we'll hear next week, Jonah ran away. Jonah fled from Yahweh. Chapter 1, verse 3. He runs away. But now a chapter has passed. In chapter 3, Jonah's a changed man. He's a changed man. In fact, chapter 3 is like a new start. It's a fresh start. It starts out like chapter 1 with word of Yahweh coming to Jonah. It starts exactly the same way in verse 1. Word of Yahweh came to Jonah. But in chapter 1, he fled. But in chapter 3, verse 3, we're told that Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. And then he went to Nineveh. What changed? Well, we heard a little bit about it last week. I want to build on it a bit. What happened was that Jonah hit the rock bottom. 
And when he hit the rock bottom, he became a kind of a person that God could use. Somebody that God could use. We often say God is God of the second chance. And, you know, we say that, but we shouldn't take that for granted because we see um, that's true to a certain extent, but it shouldn't be taken for granted because people like Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Sapphira in Acts, how they lied about their giving and they were killed. Lot's wife looked back once, this little glimpse, and she became a pillar of salt. God abandoned King Saul after one sin. But Jonah, Jonah does get a second chance by grace of God, God's mercy, after he hit the rock bottom. And there's something about hitting the rock bottom that changes a person, that makes that person useful for God. Because when a person hits the rock bottom, when a person becomes broken, there's this realization that happens. And I've talked about this last week. That person realizes a truth that is simple but profound, simple but takes a lifetime to learn that really God is God and that he or she is not. Think about what sin is. Sin is what Jonah did in chapter 1, pretending to be like God, living uh, their lives, uh, living our lives our own way. That's sin. It's thinking that we are in control over the world. It's thinking that our ways are just as good, maybe even better than God's ways. Isn't that why Jonah ran away? And we'll hear more about that next week in chapter 4. He thought that God shouldn't behave in a certain way. And so he ran away. He thought he knew better than God. That's sin. But at the heart of the sea, in the belly of this great fish, he cried out. He realized that he's not God. He can't, he can't do things his own way. God has his way of doing things. That God is God, that he is not. God thankfully removes this illusion that we are autonomous human beings in charge over this whole world, that we can live our lives our own way. And that's what, why, how people change at the rock bottom. And being broken in this way frees us, frees us um, to, do the, to do the work that seems foolish, that seems daunting, that seems greater than what we could do. Because we understand that we're not in charge. God is. This world is not ours. It's God's world. Broken people think less of themselves because they have to. They look to God because they have to. And Jonah's not the only one in the Bible. It's throughout the Bible. Peter, think about Peter. Peter's track record. It's, it's uh, other than Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, he's the worst. <laughs> think about how he denied Jesus three times. Think about the moment when the cock crowed. Think about when Jesus comes back after he rises again. He, he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me? He says, oh, Lord, I do. Do you love me? Lord, I do. Do you love me? Three times. Lord, you know I do. Think about his heart being broken when he realizes his sinfulness and what he had done. Think about Paul. His favorite designation of himself is, I am the worst of sinners. I am the chief sinner, he says. He knew he killed people only to find that he was killing the people of God. He knew he was the worst. But then, 
because he was broken, he looked and found God's mercy. His life was changed. These saints in their brokenness looked up and saw God's forgiveness, saw God's mercy and wisdom, and saw God's power. And they began to rely on God. They began to live their lives, not their own way, but God's way. So when God says, go, they're foolish enough to go. G.K. Chesterton wrote in his masterpiece, Orthodoxy, it's a great book. He wrote, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it? That's the secret, isn't it? We lay down, lay aside our, our life, our own way of living, our personal agenda, and we start following Jesus, and we become part of God's plan, and God's plan is much more grand and much bigger than what the life that you could imagine for yourself. But in order to be part of that, you have to first be broken. You have first to become losers. We have to admit defeat. We have to admit our powerlessness. We have to admit our sinfulness. We have to admit our helplessness, our finitude, our dependency. We have to admit that we don't know what's, co- what's going to come tomorrow. We, don't, we have to admit that even if we work really, really hard, we can't, we can't predict what's going to happen, that our lives are completely dependent on God. We have to start letting God be God. And we have to start obeying God. So good news is, if you're one of these people who are broken, praise God. If you don't think you amount to much, praise God. If you don't think you can change the world, praise God. If you are learning to pray because things are just so hard, because the circumstances around you, Praise God, you're becoming a kind of person that God can use. You are becoming less, and God is becoming greater in your life. And the thing is, I know it's difficult at the bottom of the sea. I know it's difficult to be at the belly of this great fish. I know it's difficult to be at the rock bottom. But God is there. And as you cry out to God, as you become a kind of person who depends on God, praise God. God is becoming greater in your life. But, um, we're now in number two. (laughs) But how does God change the world? He calls us by giving us a second chance to do the seemingly difficult and foolish things, impossible things. When God calls Jonah the second time, he doesn't say, oh, Jonah, that was, the first time was way too difficult for you. Let me just lower the standard a little bit. He doesn't, he doesn't say. It's the same call that God gives to Jonah as in chapter 1. He says, go to Nineveh and proclaim judgment in that great city. And it was a great city. Verse 3 says, the Nineveh was, uh, was very important city or very great city. A visit required three days. It was so large that an army couldn't encircle it. 120,000 people lived in it. It was the capital of Assyrian Empire. Wasn't God sending him straight to his death? It was a difficult mission, mission impossible. Sorry, that sounded really lame. Um, but, but really, that is the call that God gives us. Think about the the call of discipleship when Jesus calls each one of us, what that means. Jesus says, 
Whoever does not pick up the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, even yet even his, his own life, cannot be my disciple. He says, you can't be comfortable anymore. You can't live your life your own way anymore. You have to follow me to my death because you will have life with me. He doesn't call us to Tarshish. He calls us to Nineveh. Um, Tullian uh, Chivision, that's a very difficult name too, um, in his uh, book, Surprised by Grace, uh, puts it this way. If you want to live for things that bring only temporary comforts and happiness, there's plenty to choose from, plenty of ships to Tarshish. But only God can take you beyond that. If, um, if you want to go beyond what you could ever become on your own, you have to follow God. And that's how God will challenge and change the world. God calls us to be foolish enough to follow him. And think about God's call and how foolish these things are. God's command to us. We don't think, about, think, think like this, but Jesus says, if you want to be first, you have to be last. That the world's political and economical structures that give power to the first should be ignored, and sometimes not just ignored, but actively opposed. In the kingdom of God, we're not seek, we're not to seek to be those first, to, to rise to the top. We are told to lower ourselves because God will ultimately raise us up. Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King Jr., Christian martyrs all around the world who are still dying, Christian martyrs, during the Cultural Revolution, you know, we make stained glasses, uh, glass windows out of these martyrs. And really, they are losers in this world. They died. They didn't rise to the top. They went to the very bottom. And we celebrate the lives of these martyrs because we do not, we do not believe, we don't believe it's uh, C.Y. Long or Xi Jinping or Barack Obama or David Cameron or these people are, are people who rule this world, because we believe that their power is an illusion. It's a, it's a power is a delegated power, that they are accountable to God, that they live under authority of Jesus Christ, our crucified king. And this is a deeply subversive message. It's a dangerous message. This is why communist China did not like Christians. Because we proclaim to the world that we do not live under your authority. We live under the authority of Christ. That we do not uh, seek to be first. That we seek to be last. That we do not seek to be leaders of the world, but to, to be a servant of all. Think about the foolishness of turning the other cheek. Forgiveness. How radical and dangerous that calling is for you to forgive to turn the other cheek in this world of violence and backstabbing, competition, power play. What about the foolishness of giving money away, time away? Foolishness of caring for the Christian family, the church family. Foolishness of praying when we could be working. The foolishness of becoming a servant, foolishness of caring, not caring for the advancement of careers and big bonuses. How about the foolishness of resting because God told us to rest when everybody else around the world is resting? 
wouldn't we show if we did this, if we lived our lives following Jesus, wouldn't we show that there is a different king in this world, that we do not serve the idols of this world, but we, lo- we serve Jesus Christ, our king, that the kingdom of God has arrived here on earth, that we are living this dangerous and exciting call of discipleship. Jonah was asked to do this seemingly foolish and difficult things, because, but because he obeyed, he changed that city. We are asked to follow Jesus, which might seem incredibly foolish in so many ways, in this health and wealth and power-obsessed city. So my question to you is, do you see Christianity, Christian discipleship, as a dangerous calling? Does following Jesus force you to go constantly against the grain of this society, in this world, in this city? Or do you see it as something that would help you to get to the top? Are we constantly challenged by the, by the call of Jesus? Or, or, or are we just constantly comforted by it all? As Tullian puts it, there are plenty of ships to Tarshish. Are we on that ship or are we following Jesus, the crucified and risen king? Only one path, one of those paths will change the world. And that is the incredible thing about the world, about, about what God does, because Jonah was broken. Because he became foolish enough to do just what God asked him to do. He obeyed. And when he obeyed, he saw God at work. He saw the world change before his eyes. Look at what happened. Jonah goes and preaches a message of judgment. Verse 4. He goes into the middle of the city, preaches a one-sentence sermon. In 40 days, Nineveh will be judged. Block by block, he went. In 40 days, God will judge you. Another block. In 40 days, God will judge you. And the incredible thing is what happens in verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They didn't take Jonah's words as a human word. They didn't take Jonah to be uh, just another crazy person here. But they took Jonah's words as God's words. And they took it uh, and, 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 and they believed God. They put on sackcloth and, and they started fasting. When the king of Nineveh heard about this, he put on sackcloth and ashes and, and started fasting. He proclaimed to the city that the whole city should repent and turn from their evil ways and start fasting, not even the animals. Can you imagine C.Y. Lung doing this in Hong Kong? And if you think that Jonah brought this change to the city. That's not Jonah. It's not Jonah's one-sentence sermon that changed that city. It was God. God did this. God changed that city. In fact, there's plenty of evidence that God had prepared that city for Jonah's coming. For example, by the time of Jonah's visit, the Syrian empire was at an unusually low position. The empire was falling apart. There was political instability in the, in the region. There are several people, actually, in that region who could, be, who could possibly be this king of Nineveh because they're, they're vying for power. So there was political instability. There were revolts in year uh, 763 to 759 B.C. There were plagues 
765 BC, which made people very nervous. And there was also a solar eclipse, which is a very big deal in the ancient Near East um, culture. Solar eclipse in 763 BC. It was followed by a statement of, from the king saying that the king will die and there will be a flood. So when Jonah arrived in the middle of the 8th century, they were primed to hear his message. Once again, we need to learn this. God is God. We are not. We don't change the world. God does. We don't have to save the world because God did in Jesus Christ. We're a people who believe that when Jesus came to this world, this world was radically changed. When Jesus lived and died and was crucified and he rose again, the world was changed, that the course of history was changed, that the kingdom of God now is breaking in. His will is being done here on earth as as it is in heaven. When he sent the Holy Spirit upon the earth, God turned us around. He made his people and God is active in this world. We are a people who do not believe that we have to change the world. We are a people who believe that God saved it already. And the evidence that God has decisively changed the course of history is the existence of the church. It's it's the existence of Shatin Church and the churches in Hong Kong that's worshiping right now. Churches around the world. Think about what a church is. We're a people who abandoned the world's idols. We're a people who say, you know, we died and rose again with Christ. We're a people who believe that we will rise again after we die. We're a people who seek to serve others, to forgive others, to live with one or, uh, others. We're a, a people, a community that, that seeks to serve Christ and Christ alone. We're not divided by our nationality, our philosophy of life, our personality. We're not divided according to our tribes. We are united as the body of Christ, and we seek to bear witness to him. We're a body that drives its identity by not what we have accomplished, but what God has accomplished for us. We're a community that knows Christ as our king. And the symbol of our identity is not found in national flags or accomplishments, but in the cross. Of course, I'm not saying that we're a perfect church. We're far from it. Just look at yourselves and me. (laughs) But... That such a community like ours exists means that God is active in this world. It does. That we come together and we call ourselves, each other, brothers and sisters, means that God is active in this world. And what it's saying is that the powers of this world will one day crumble down when the one with the crown of thorns comes back It means that God will raise those people who have humbled themselves. It means that those who have been foolish enough to seek to be lost, God will make first. That those who have been broken and those who have been foolish will finally see the world in reality um, in the way that they only saw by faith. That the world would change in a flash in a twinkling of an eye when the trumpet sounds, and that 
God will prove that the foolishness of God is much wiser than the wisdom of this age, that our crucified king has always reigned. That's how God will change the world, not through us. God is doing it. God will do it. So let's pray that God will send us his spirit, remind us that we are a broken people, give us that perspective, and help us to be that community that lives radically for Jesus. Lord, we proclaim each week that you are our king. And Lord, but we go out each day, each week, and live our lives that betray our conviction that says that we are our king. Money is our king. Comfort is our king. We seek to be first. We seek recognition and significance that the world does. And we repent and we turn to you. Lord, help us to know what it means to have you as our king. Lord, if we need to be broken, Lord, we pray that you will break us. Help us to turn to you and make us foolish. Make us people who are entirely dependent on you. And we pray that as we go and live our foolish lives, live radical lives that you give us, Lord, that you will change the world through it, that people will know that God is still reigning, that Christ crucified is our king, that you uh, have always reigned. Lord, we don't know what this means yet, but make us your church that comes to deeper realization of what this means. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.